Uh, some of you are great planners. Uh, you're very good at just details and getting things scheduled and, and ready. I think about Paula that was introduced here earlier. She was an event planner, has her own company for the last 40 years. Uh, the Four Alarm Productions done circuses and all kinds of events throughout the country. Some of us are great planners. And so if you're a great planner, what are you going to be doing a year from now? I mean, you just mark this day, April the 30th of 2024. What are you going to be doing? Well, some of us have an idea, right? Some, some thoughts about what we might be doing. But the truth is, none of us know exactly what we're going to be doing a year from now. But as we turn to Psalm 22, we're going to find something very unique. We find in Psalm 22 words that were spoken a thousand years before an event played out, and we will see in such sterling detail. The events of Psalm 22 were written six centuries before the execution mode of crucifixion was invented. Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel, or the gospel according to David. Spurgeon was the one who said, if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is quoted more often than any other passage in the New Testament. 24 times it's referenced in the New Testament. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, it quotes Psalm 22 as if Jesus himself is speaking the words. Plenty of scholars would contest, would, would, would agree that Jesus not only quoted Psalm 22 on the cross, but quite possibly even sang what we are about to experience. Remember, the Psalms, the Psalter, it was the hymn book, the ancient hymn book of the Hebrew nation. People would use this to sing and express themselves in worship. So turn with me to Psalm 22 as we look for a couple of minutes before we experience the Lord's Supper, and the two of these go so well together. I hope that I can have your undivided attention. I guarantee you this will not be everything that I want. I guarantee that. I've labored and struggled and, and just so much want this psalm to come alive for us before we have the Lord's Supper because it's such a pivotal, powerful statement of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're first going to look at the agony of our Lord. In Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1 and following, and, and if you think about the psalm, it's divided up into a couple of different portions. It, it starts off with this cry. This, 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 this almost sounds like a helpless cry, but it's not. And then it moves to the past of remembering who God is. And then it comes back into the presence of the struggle and the agony that's taking place. And then it, then it moves from there to the present and the past and present and the past. And then it, then it shifts. And we're going to see that shift in which we move from the agony to the victory of our Lord. This is such a beautiful statement of what Christ has done. And it was written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified by King David. This could be a psalm in which David is expressing some kind of affliction within his own life, in which he feels completely overwhelmed. He could be writing with the expression of someone else, but God is using it prophetically to describe in great detail what Jesus Christ would do. It's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. 
This is the fourth statement that Jesus made on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, and Mark chapter 15, verse 34, and it's the, the fourth of the seven statements that we have of Jesus making when he's being crucified, but it's the first one that is made when the darkness overcomes the world. You think back upon that, we think of darkness and probably like a, a storm, maybe, maybe it clouded up, maybe the sky was gray, but I think back to what happened in Egypt when God called the plague of darkness in which it was completely pitch black. It was an eerie darkness that no one had ever experienced before. And here is Jesus in the midst of that pitch black darkness hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken is to be abandoned, to be left behind. And when we turn back to the, the title of this psalm, we find that it is to be played to the tune of the doe of the dawn. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but many historians have indicated that that would seem to picture the, the, the idea of a dawn that has been left behind from the rest of the herd, hoping for the dawn in which she will be reunited with the rest of her herd, feels helpless, feels like a victim, feels abandoned, and no one is there. Well, that's how Jesus felt. Jesus, Jesus said in John 10, 30, that I and the Father are one, but for the first time in his eternal existence, he felt as if he had been abandoned, that there had been a breach in the relationship that he shared with the Father and the Spirit. And that's why in this one verse, we have five different times the personal pronoun of my and me, in which Jesus, in agony, speaking of himself, I feel disconnected from that which I treasure most. Augustine was the one who said, when Jesus quotes the first line of this psalm, he has the whole psalm in mind. We kind of segment it like he, he said that and then he said this. But as historians look at this, they have the indication, the idea that Jesus was stating this as a statement, pointing people's attention to Psalm 22. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To all who, who were listening, they were, they were hearing the very first verse of a very familiar song. Amazing grace. That's the picture there. When you hear that first phrase of a song, all of a sudden, the rest of the song sweeps into your memory. And for many of you, when you think of that song, there are memories that go with it, experiences of life that resonate with you. And when Jesus cried out or sung out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is calling to the attention of all those who could hear him of Psalm 22. We hear of this agony that he goes through as it describes the crucifixion in such vivid detail. Again, six centuries before crucifixion was invented. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind. And friends, just be reminded that every word that we read here today from Scripture, these are words spoken by Jesus in which he is nailed to a cross after being flogged and beaten, ridiculed and mocked, deprived of hydration, deprived of any kind of sustenance. And here he is, nailed to a cross, suffering the greatest agony humanity has known. The only reason the crucifixion was invented wasn't to kill people. 
It was to kill people in a very slow, excruciating way. To extend death, to make it as painful as possible. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. When he says he's a worm, he recognizes that he has been treated inhumanely. He's been dehumanized, devalued to the point of being nothing more than that of sport. Scott de Gladia is a Swedish term that some of you are familiar with, and it means to take delight in the misery of someone else. And when we read these words, we see those that are standing by the cross, taking delight, savoring pleasure in the agony that Jesus is experiencing. There's a lot of controversy exactly how crucifixion took place. Some would say that the cross was elevated so people could see, and anybody walking in any proximity could look and they could see the cross and they could see the person up on the cross to be reminded, do not do this because this is what Rome does to people that do these kinds of things. That there are others who would contest that when someone was crucified, they were crucified no more than a foot above the ground in which they were almost eye level with those who would come by and would mock them and speak at them and make sport of them and would simply almost accentuate the agony that you are so close to where they are, but you are in agony and they are not. And they could speak into your face. And he says, I am a worm. And they're just mocking and rejoicing in all of this. They mock me. They make mouths at me. Imagine you are in so much pain upon the cross. And that's not even to, to speak of the spiritual dimension at this point. And they're making these, these mouths that would just mock who he is. They wag their heads like, what a disgrace. You don't deserve to die. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And all of that would end with laughter. Oh, he says that God delights in him. Let God delight in him now and take him off of the cross. The beauty of the way that the Hebrew is used here is that the word worm is, is actually the term for a caucus worm. And a caucus worm was used by the Hebrews in which they would take from that worm and they would use it to dye the curtains of the tabernacle scarlet red. As Jesus hung in the agony of the cross, and said that he was a worm as he quoted back to these words. And David probably, no, no doubt, was thinking back on, on just the dehumanization of feeling like a worm. And Jesus was saying, the blood that is spilling from my veins is a scarlet red blood that dyes the tabernacle red. He thought back to Genesis 22 that he would be the sacrifice. Just as Abraham was sacrificing Isaac, offering to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, which would be the very place that Jesus would die many, century, many centuries later. Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant. He thought of 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that was not yet written. But for us, we can be reminded what Paul said. The one who did not know sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. He talks about just the experience that he's experiencing even now, and he says, I am poured out like water. When you're dying on the cross, there is not an ounce of hydration left in your body. The fever, the sweat, the abuse, 
and he feels as if his life is just ebbing out like someone pouring out a pitcher of water. It goes on to say, all of my bones are out of joint. It's a picture of crucifixion. Commonly understood that when someone was crucified and they were placed upon the cross because of the position and the way that it was designed to be so painful that you could literally, you could literally feel every single bone in your body and they would be disconnected, literally pulling apart from the joints. If you would think back to the Passion of the Christ when Jim Gavizio was, was on the cross as an actor playing the part of being crucified, his shoulder was literally dislocated in the process. It says, all of my bones are out of joint. How incredible to think that the one who holds all things together that Paul would write about in Colossians 1.17, in that moment can't keep his bones connected. My heart is like wax. It's this sense that the heart is just becoming hard and drying up. I'm dying. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. Everything about him, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Such a common thought that what would happen in crucifixion when people were, were, were uh, on the cross and they're so dehydrated that sometimes their tongue would literally stick to the roof of their mouth and they would suffocate from the tongue being stuck to the roof of the mouth. They were so dried out. The one word that we have excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. That's what Jesus was experiencing. Verse 16, it says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When people reject God, if any of us reject God, we become like animals. We see that in the people there. I mean, these were religious leaders, and they're acting like animals, praying on this victim. All four Gospels note the dividing of Jesus' garments, the casting of the lots. It's a reminder that he is here to die. Dead people don't need clothes. It's a reminder that you are dead to us, everybody around the cross. Your life is as good as over. You are dead. They pierced my hands and feet. David wouldn't even understand what that meant. Nobody was ever treated like that. Speaking of crucifixion that would come centuries later. I can count all of my bones just as I was describing a moment. The pain would cause you to feel every single bone in your body. And verse 21 becomes a hinge point. We feel the oppressive agony of what Christ is going through. Don't let that go. Sometimes we want to come to church and we want to feel good. We're going to feel good here in a minute, but we need to feel what Christ has done for us. That's what this Lord's Supper is about. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. This becomes the, the hinge verse in verse 21. It's one Hebrew word translated here, you have rescued me, but the singular Hebrew word says, you have heard me. Jesus is moving into his victory cry after we see and understand the agony that he experienced. And we must never diminish the agony that he, that he experienced. At 
the song of worship. It is when Jesus begins to sing with the anticipation of the victory that God is about to deliver him. And he says in verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. They shall bow down even the one who could not keep himself alive. This moves into the point in which Jesus in the closing hours of the crucifixion, begins to experience the victory. We have all uh, that might experience a rally before they die. And, and when, we ex- when we see that and, the, and someone begins to have energy and begins to talk and we think maybe they're getting better, but it, it is a rally. And they might say or express something and then they pass. That's what Jesus is rallying and talking about the victory. That's what Psalm 22 is about. Those who would try to destroy him will see him raised in victory. The repentant victory. As Jesus is hanging on the cross and he turns to that thief who says, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus in that moment, this is why I am here. This is why I am in agony. And that of victory begins to cry out to this man who was nailed to a cross, been identified as Rome to say, you are unfit to live. He says to him, I am making you fit to live with me forever in heaven. Verse 30, it says, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. As Jesus is on the cross and he's thinking, and he knows that the moment is coming. It may be another hour, it may be another two hours, but he knows that the victory is coming and he's starting to feel that surge that what he is doing is going to be victorious. He will not die in defeat. Coming generations will hear about what he is experiencing even now. Those that are yet unborn will know of his redemption paid up on the cross. I was in a pastor's conference a few weeks back listening to uh, a man I've become acquainted with over the last couple of years because of my son-in-law, Mark Dever. And he made a a very insightful statement about the Great Commission. He says, so oftentimes we think of the Great Commission as geographical. To the ends of the earth. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Reach the nation. But it also is generational. The Great Commission is generational as well as geographical. To the ends of the earth. In some people's minds, it's as if, if, if we can just get to those last people that don't know, then somehow Christ is going to come. And sometimes we make a dynamic, making sure that the faith is passed from one generation to the next. Sometimes we have the experience of, of someone that is church, and then it stops in the next. And I want to encourage you, no matter what place you are, whatever generation you are, that you would be thinking generational. If those above you, your parents and grandparents don't know Christ, that you would be generational about reaching them. And if your parents or grandparents, you would be very intentional about your children and your grandchildren knowing who Jesus Christ is. 
And Jesus has a surging victory that from one generation to the next to the next, they will hear and proclaim what I have done. To people yet unborn, that it has, it has been done. That doesn't really trigger our memory very much. But we think back to John chapter 19, verse 30, my favorite word in Scripture, to tell us die. It is finished. One Greek word that makes the statement that it has all been paid. You put the Gospels together, and I hope we never forget this, and you see that Jesus cries that he thirsts. And then they extend to him some hydration from a hyssop branch. How picturesque, the same hyssop branch that Moses would spread the blood over the people in the Old Testament. And the hyssop branch is extended to him, and he takes that sip. Why does he do that? Because he's thirsty and, and he wants to, to have some kind of relief? No. He receives that drink for one last purpose so that his mouth will be lubricated enough that he can shout, so that the whole world will hear. We have this idea that Jesus said, it is finished and laid his head down, like it was defeat. But as we move through the psalm, we see this victory surging up to this one particular moment. And when Jesus recognizes that he has come to earth, he has lived a sinless life, he has laid down his life for us, he has been sacrificed, and not once has he sinned, even through the whole process of the crucifixion, he has even prayed for the forgiveness of those who have nailed him to the cross. And then he takes that one sip of hydration, and then he cries to the top of his lungs, Tetelestai! It's a statement of victory, Everything that I came to do, I have done. The debt has been paid. The sins have been washed away. Victory is mine. And when we think about what happens on the cross next, we have seen so many movies of Jesus, and his head goes down like this. But in the Greek, it says that he laid back his head like a pillow. A victor who has claimed that he has won, he has conquered, and so he yells, to Telestai! And in the agony of that moment, with a smile on his face, says he lays his head back as on a pillow. The one who had no place to lay his head in the last moment of his life finds a place to lay his head. The victory. In Revelation chapter 22, three different times, the same word for tree that is used to describe the cross is used to describe the tree of life. We need to connect the dots to recognize that when we get to heaven, the tree of life isn't going to be some brand new creation. It is going to be a replica of the cross that our Lord died upon. And listen to the words. Then the of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, a tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's the same word that is used to describe the cross. Because what Christ did on the cross, he took an instrument of defeat and he turned it into an icon of victory. 
And one of the ways that Jesus did that is a way that all of us can experience when we are going through hardships in our own lives. We have called this the refreshment. When we think about this series, how do we find refreshment in our own lives? Refreshment comes from the power of remembrance. You go back to the verse 3 and following, it says, this is Jesus speaking, yet you are holy. Remember, he cried out, you have, why are you forsaking me? He says, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To, they, to you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Three different times, the, the word, it, it, is, it is a verb form of trust. It's to put all of your weight is what it means, to put all of your weight on God, to fully trust Him. Not to try to trust yourself to get through your difficulty, but to put your full weight upon God. And what Jesus was doing is He was recalling the faithfulness of God in His agony, he was recalling the faithfulness of God, knowing that God has been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future. No matter how long I hang on this cross, he will be faithful to deliver me through this death. And he did become victorious. Friends, we oftentimes mistake his silence for his absence. We oftentimes mistake his silence for his absence. And just because God may seem silent doesn't mean that he is absent. And that is what Jesus was saying. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Just words? I don't think so. When Jesus looks down from the cross and he sees his mom standing next to John, and he's reminded, that's my mom. She's the one that gave birth to me as a virgin. My birth, as he reflected back, my birth is for this very purpose. This is why I was born. This was Jesus' hymn book, the Psalms. And he sees this psalm as the one that points to him as the Savior. The beauty that we have is that we stand on the other side of Calvary. I said that last week. We have the advantage of seeing more in the Psalms than the psalmist himself. David didn't understand all that he was writing, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as he wrote that, he was describing what Jesus would do for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the one who said, Christ appropriated this prayer of Psalm 22, and for the first time, it acquired its full meaning. What was Jesus doing? to those who mocked him, to those who stood by the cross, to those who believed him as they watched him die. He was saying, go and read Psalm 22. It speaks of me and what I am doing. What is your point of refreshment this morning? What can you walk away with this point of refreshment? Is that we have a perfect Savior who is nearer than we think. That's what Paul said in Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 27. He said, God is near to us all. We have a perfect Savior who is near to us all. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Nobody in that day and time ever was satisfied except for the, the rich. And God says, you will be satisfied completely. Christ can make you satisfied. And friend, if you're here today and you've 
say, wow, that's, that's quite a story. I don't know that I've ever heard anything quite like that. I want you to know that story is about God's love for you. That God loves you so much that he would do something like that so that you could have a relationship with him. That's why he created you. But something that bad had to happen because our sin is worse than we can ever imagine. And our sin separates us from holy God. But Jesus came to make us right with God. He did all the heavy lifting. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to do what we deserve? That Psalm 22 doesn't have to be about our death? Because Jesus did that for us. All we have to do is humbly repent of our sins and completely surrender our life to Jesus Christ. And I want to lead us in a prayer in just a moment to do that. And if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to understand all about it. You just by faith have to say, I believe that you died to redeem me from my sins. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and then our deacons will begin to make their way to the front, and we will have the Lord's Supper, and I pray that it would be a time of deep reflection of what Christ has done for us. God, thank you for what you have done for us. It is beyond our comprehension, and it is beyond our ability to adequately communicate. Thank you for the resonance of your word that speaks to us, the power of your word that reminds us of the sacrifice that you have made to redeem us from our sins. Lord, we are in worse shape than we can imagine. But because of your grace, we experience far more than we would ever deserve. Lord, I pray for friends that are here this morning that might be listening even now online or here in this room. And if they have never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would recognize their desperate need for you. To recognize that a death that is that bad doesn't mean that God looks at our sin with a casual eye. It means our sin is very serious, and we would recognize our need to have forgiveness. So if anyone listening has never received Christ, might they voice a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have. And I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. Lord, if anyone has begun that, voiced that prayer and begun a relationship with you, I pray that you would give them wisdom, guidance, friends, and people to surround them and help them to take their next steps. And Lord, Lord for those of us who are Christians, we've already professed our faith in you, might we recognize that when we read and hear something like this, we recognize that the only proper response is to indeed surrender all that we have to you and to follow hard after you every single day of our life. And if we find that that does not describe our life, lead us to the point of scrutiny in our own lives to ask, am I really a Christian? Or am I so far from God that I desperately need to repent and turn back to him? Guide us in these moments as we remember what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for listening. And 
I'd love for our deacons now to just make their way to the front as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. And as, as, as we continue to pr- prepare, we've had a, a powerful statement from Scripture. And may we reflect upon what that means. We're here because of what Jesus did for us. It takes some time now just to pray where you are. And then as the elements are passed to you, help those around you to receive the elements. And likewise, if you're not a member of Westgate, but you are a professing Christian, you've been baptized as a demonstration of that, and to the best of your ability, you're living a repentant life. You're not steeped in sin. We invite you then to join us as we remember what Christ has done.
Lord, would you lead us in prayer? Dear Jesus, our Lord, our Master, our Savior, what a wonderful place to be this uh, Sabbath day. What a powerful message. Thank you for all the new members, the parents bringing their children. They have opportunity to lead Christian lives in front of their children and lead those children to know you, Jesus, as Lord and Master, Savior. Thank you for that wonderful, precious servant for our pastor. Thank you that he gives the altar call regularly, knowing that some will hear it who will never have heard it before, never hear it again. Thank you for Psalm 22. Certainly, personally, is not aware of just how meaningful it is, and we will certainly read it again. Quite sure that your Holy Spirit must have led David to give those words. Know that Jesus Himself might you might have sponsored to impress David to use those words. Thank you for this communion service. We call it the Lord's Supper. You instigated it many years ago for your precious uh, disciples. We're this side of the cross, as they say, and probably understand a little bit more of what you were saying. Uh, we know that you, Holy God, came from heaven and with your creation and allowed mankind to punish you. And uh, that blood, that uh, body, exhibited or by the bread and by the wine mm -mm, that was your death your resurrection I know Lord that uh, probably the best prayers shorter than this but it's a pleasure privilege to talk to you brothers and sisters are praying out there in the congregation thank you for this church thank you for you most of all Bring us close to you. It's a, such a wonderful Savior you are. Thank you again, Jesus, in your name. I pray to you, to Father God, and the Holy Spirit. And I say amen. 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 Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says in the same way, he also took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, in the heaviness of the message, don't forget the victory. I will die believing that Jesus died with a smile on his face when he yelled to tell us die. Because he knew that he was now giving to you and me and everyone who professes faith in him eternal and abundant life. Life as God intends. If we can help you at all on your spiritual journey, pick up one of these cards right in front of you and put your name and phone number on there. You can go to the Connection Center out in the atrium and drop it off. We'd love to pray with you or talk with you, help you take your next steps.
So now we're going to stand together and we're going to worship the God that we have worshiped already. And if you have someone, if you have a need, you want somebody to pray with you, we'll have deacons back at the end of each aisle. I'll be standing at the cross. Let's respond to God as he leads us now.
Have a great week. See you next week for our musical. Go vote.